Welcome to Ballpark Banter, a podcast dedicated to exploring the 30 ballparks of Major League Baseball. We're a pair of ballpark gurus who've been to every MLB stadium and now want to take you through what it's like to catch a game at each. On this show, each ballpark gets its own episode where we'll explore its history and then dive deep into the facts, figures, and fun anecdotes that make it unique. Follow us on social at Ballpark Banter for regular doses of ballpark trivia and visit ballparkbanterpodcast.com for more information. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballpark Banter where we explore the 30 ballparks of Major League Baseball one by one in the same order as when we saw them all. In one summer with our good friends, eternal shout out, as always, to Kendall, Jack, and Ruben. My name is Travis Parker-Smith, and with me, as always, is my friend and fellow ballpark guru, Kellen Larson. And today we're heading to the south side of Chicago to explore the home of the White Sox, Guaranteed Rate Field. Now, Kellen, before we kind of orient people to this ballpark, as always, tell me what the first thing is that comes to mind when you think of the home of the White Sox. I remember sitting in the upper deck and seeing the top of some of the skyscrapers like through the windows that uh, are above kind of the opposite side of the upper deck, but still below kind of the, the upper architecture of the ballpark. And I remember thinking, kind of wish this stadium was oriented like due north so that you could get the view of that beautiful Chicago skyline from the ballpark. It was nice to see the roofs of the towers, but I think the seat that I was in was kind of a unique seat to be able to do that. I found actually a a post on Reddit by a user named Lil Larry in the Chicago White Sox subreddit. Shout out Lil Larry. He made a photo mashup to show what that might look like if the, the grate was oriented in a way in which you could see the Chicago skyline to the north there. And it adds so much character, I think, to the ballpark. Like I I I'm sure they faced it south for shadow reasons, but I kind of wish that the orientation would would kind of place it in Chicago more strongly by having some views of the famous skyline from the ballpark. Yeah, the ballpark that's coming to mind and what I think you're describing is Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia, which is very much in South Philly, like like miles away from downtown. But they've kept the outfield, primarily center field concourse, very low so that fans pretty much throughout the entire park can see the Philly skyline from there over the center field gate, over the outfield concourses. And I agree, just tilt the ballpark a bit. And and beautiful Chicago is staring back at you. Um, I think for me, the first thing that comes to mind is you just mentioned it, the nickname, the great. We're, we're going to get into the other nicknames this park has held. Uh, it's it's God, we're going to come out and say it's got to be one of the toughest names for a field. Uh, you know, no disrespect to guaranteed rate insurance, but it it doesn't roll off the tongue like some other even corporate sponsored ballparks do. Now, before we dive deep into the history of Guaranteed Rate Field, give us some fast facts about this ballpark, including what I was just alluding to. Yes, let's get into the former name. So, of course, it was called New Comiskey from its inception in 1991 all the way until 2003, at which point U.S. Cellular got the naming right. So it was U.S. Cellular Field through 2016. Since then, it is Guaranteed Rate Field. 
The capacity is listed at 40,615. That would bring it in at number 22 on the list of capacities. It used to be a lot bigger, like 47,500, but some renovations in the mid-2000s actually decreased the capacity. The largest crowd that we have on record is 47,754 for a Chance the Rapper concert. Shout out Chance the Rapper, Chicago Zone. It, it, that feels like a pretty appropriate largest crowd incident for a ballpark that we've covered this. I far. would say so. Yeah, I think I think that's our fourth concert. So we've had four concerts, a few baseball games, that Pope visit still holding on strong and solo. We're now going to take you through a history of guaranteed rate field. The Chicago White Sox are one of baseball's oldest franchises, having been around since 1901, some would argue even before, what we would call the modern era of Major League Baseball. After a short inaugural stint at Southside Park, the White Sox spent 81 years at Comiskey Park, which was built in 1910 in the middle of that jewel box era craze and was every bit as archaic as its origin suggested. In 1989, as creaky old Comiskey was beginning to show signs of fatigue, the White Sox opted to build a brand new ballpark and chose to do so right next to old Comiskey, and also chose to have it look and function, well, pretty much like old Comiskey. I'm going to talk a lot about the specificities here in just a second, but the original color of the seats, the design of the ballpark, the big exploding scoreboard in center field, everything at this new White Sox park hearkened to the Sox's old home. Even its name when it opened, Kellen, as you just said, was New Comiskey Park. This isn't the only time it's been done where a jewel box ballpark has started to crumble and the team needed a new one and instead of building something totally different, decided to build a brand new stadium that was essentially an ode to that park. But this is almost kind of like the rough draft of what the Yankees wound up submitting the final draft for with Yankee Stadium. I'm going to be honest, guaranteed rate got a bad beat when it comes to ball architecture. What I mean by this is, well, it was built at the worst possible time. If you've listened to our History of the Ballpark episode, and if you haven't, you should, you'll know some of this. But to recap, at the end of the 1980s, Many American cities were facing the impending choice of what to do with their decaying, ugly, multi-purpose venues. No true baseball-only venues, what we call ballparks, had been built since Kauffman Stadium in 1973, which was erected in a modernist concept of rural concrete. Fun fact, guaranteed rates dimensions are based off of Kauffman's dimensions because of this. It strikes me how much of this is kind of based on luck as a fan. Yeah. The place you call home is, you know, we talk about all these political machinations and and how well a previous building has held up and and what kind of taxpayer package gets passed and how the team is performing plays into when you get a new stadium and, and everything, what kind of owners you have. And, you know, as Mariner fans, for example, like I love our ballpark. We got, frankly, very lucky that mm -hmm. we didn't build a new one just 10 years earlier. In mm -hmm. 1991, right? Well, to come after Camden and soon after Camden was a great stroke of luck for us. Well, and that's where I I said, you know, the the White Sox and their fans just got a they got a bad beat. They got unlucky with this ballpark because 
The White Sox did not play in a multi-purpose venue, but I'm not blaming them, of course, for that. They were, however, facing the same dilemma, which was their old stadium, Old Comiskey, was, well, crumbling. The team, when they elected to build the first baseball-only venue since Kauffman, it wasn't just that. It was going to be just the fourth baseball-only venue built for MLB since the jewel box era of the 1910s and 1920s, with the others having been Dodger Stadium, Angel Stadium, Candlestick Park, and as I just said, Kauffman. Also, two of those stadiums I just mentioned were actually at one point transformed into multi-purpose venues. So what this meant was the White Sox had like little to no inspiration or influence for their new stadium, other than the stadium slash complexes that had been built in the decades before it, which were multi-purpose venues. They kind right. of got unlucky. So the result was the ballpark turned out to be a ballpark, yes, but it held many multi-purpose influences in it, including they incorporated a ton of concrete, those spiraled ramp walkways that you know you and I used to go up and down at the Kingdom uh, to take fans up to higher concourses, and a pretty symmetrical look to the entirety of the stadium. And I guess some of this is on the owners because they didn't make the decision that I'm about ready to talk about with the Orioles. But they built it right next to their old ballpark, which is located, and you're going to get to this here in a second with the walkability score, in a spot that's not exactly in downtown Chicago. And so with that, you know, they didn't make the decision to go urban, but perhaps the worst stroke of luck from them all is the ballpark that was built the year following Camden Yards in Baltimore did decide to go urban. Camden Yards did elect to stay in a very urban part of Baltimore to incorporate the city instead of go to where the parking lots were. They didn't want to build right next to their multi-purpose venue like the White Sox did next to Old Comiskey. And, well, Camden Yards opening the following year ushered in the era of the retro classic park. People saw that ballpark and were like, that's new, that's innovative, that's beautiful. And poor new Comiskey was just kind of left left there saying like, Hey, we're a ballpark too. We just aren't this cool new retro classic thing. So in short, Chicago was kind of left behind. As you said, as we said, it's unlucky because truly guaranteed rate field. Let's be frank. It's not the most homey field. Since it opened in 1991, the ballpark has received a plethora of complaints from locals and fans with many calling it a cookie-cutter stadium, especially when comparing it to the other 90s ballparks like Camden, Coors, and T-Mobile. This contributed to the ballpark's duo of insulting nicknames. It was The Cell when it was called U.S. Cellular Field, and now as guaranteed rate, as we've mentioned, it's The Great. We do, of course, have to give some props to The Great. While many White Sox fans are still hoping their team pulls up Texas Rangers and just builds a brand new stadium only a couple decades after their last one opened, the stadium owners group have done their best to make the great feel at least a bit more welcoming. The upper deck went through major renovations after fans complained about ugliness and a lack of accessibility, and a huge multi-tiered concourse was added beyond the outfield wall to give a little bit more of a fan-friendly experience. This also resulted in the reduction of capacity, which Kellen, you mentioned in the Fast Facts section, when they removed roughly 6,000 seats and lowered the stadium from the fifth largest in MLB to the 22nd. So we talked a little bit about how guaranteed rate isn't exactly in downtown Chicago. Let's dive a bit deeper into that. Kellen, what's the walkability score of this ballpark? Right. Well, it's not, you know, too far geographically. And there's some some surrounding neighborhoods, but the immediate surroundings, 
it doesn't very well pass the Google Earth test that I like to do, where you look at it from above and it's surrounded on all sides by either parking lots, uh, train tracks, or literally I-90, <laughs> Interstate 90. Um, you know, in terms of strict like accessibility, being right on, you know, the L doesn't take you every, everywhere you need to go in Chicago, but being right on the red line is nice. It's That's nice. A That's definitely yeah, I mean, a if you can get to the red line, you can get to the park. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some like I was I haven't actually I love the bar scene in Chicago. I haven't experienced it much around this ballpark, but I want to give a shout out to Cork and Carrie and Turtles uh, Bar and Grill, which is just a block to the north in the in the neighborhood up there. One more shout out actually I want to give is to the Chicago Bike Socks is a group that does group rides to the White Sox games every Tuesday home game. And they quote unquote tailgate at the bike racks between gates two and three. <laughs> so I don't know if there's somebody can come up with a clever pun that's like tailgate um, uh, for for biking, but <laughs> bike socks is already about as good. Bike of a, socks is already pretty good. Yeah, that, that's that's an eighty grade name. Speaking of, of grades, what grade are you giving this on the walkability scale? Yeah, we have to go below average because you know what we care about kind of why we do this section is for the vibes, right? We want, we want a fun context and, and a place to celebrate and be merry with your fellow fans. And it's hard, it's hard to find those in the immediate vicinity of the ballpark. So we'll give it a 40 below average. Maybe next summer I can uh, join for a bike tailgate. And even if you can't join for a bike tailgate, having an L stop right there does really salvage a lot for this ballpark. It's better than than some, but for a a ballpark that's part of a huge city, kind of like City Field in New York, it's just a little bit farther out than you think and doesn't quite have the same urban feel of like hopping out from a bar, walking across the street and entering the gate. Right. And maybe we don't want to make too many like direct comparisons to their north side neighbor but also on the red line uh on the addison stop like wrigleyville is so much fun and wrigley got an 80 on the walkability score but we are not comparing crosstown rivals do you dream of visiting every major league ballpark Know someone who does? Or maybe you need a new gift idea for a baseball addict in your life? Check out Touch Em All, a book written by me, Travis Parker Smith, host of this show. Tracing the tale of four teenagers who drove a beat-up old hippie bus to all 30 parks in one summer, this memoir is a fun, easy read that's perfect for this baseball season. And it's the inspiration for this podcast. Order it online or, preferably, from your local bookstore. And head to ballparkbanterpodcast.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. We're now going to take you around the bases of Guaranteed Rate Field, giving you three things where, if you go and catch a game here, you should check this stuff out. And if not, you should at least know about it. Kellen, what's on first at the home of the White Sox? 
Well, the White Sox play in Chicago, Travis. It's known as the Windy City. It's often scorned for its really frigid temperatures in the winter. Of course, it can also get hot as hell during the summer. So between the sweltering Illinois heat and some of the humidity that comes off Lake Michigan, temperatures during the day games in, say, peak July and August at Guaranteed Rate Field can get into the triple digits. So to deal with this, the White Sox have added some interesting methods to help cool fans down. They have three rain rooms in the ballpark, which are exactly what they sound like. If you're getting too hot, you can hop into one of these rooms. There's one on the first level and also one in the upper deck. And you can stand in the room as these as this <laughs> mist trickles down onto you. This sounds so simple. <laughs> like, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, I'm, like- I'm interested. I mean, you know, as... I can overheat like anybody else than a nice refreshing rain room. Sounds pretty good. In reality, I'm I'm not exactly sure how the execution is. Some people might think it's a little gross. Like if you stand under a mister for too long, you'll just end up looking like a vegetable in the grocery <laughs> store being sprayed to keep fresh. Yeah, I'm imagining like a head of lettuce just getting sprayed, but it's it's people at a, a game. <laughs> yeah. and- outside Chicago in the middle of August. It's, I don't know, like, this is a cool concept. It's fun that they actually, like, are able to make it work, but it does seem like it might get a little disgusting in those rooms, you know, after. Right. After, well, after there long. is a second option. We'll oh. see if you think where you think it falls on that scale. It's a little more interesting. In center field, there's an actual legit shower stall that's completely open to the public to step into and rinse off. It looks kind of like a porta potty and it's advertised <laughs> as the plumber's local 130 shower. Oh. So it sounds like it's a it's a like union a, shower or organized yeah. labor shower. <laughs> you can find it on the main concourse near section 161 and you might recognize it. This was actually one of the things that the White Sox brought over from old Comiskey Park. So I'm not sure how often it's actually used to shower in, but it's a fun quirk. It's emblematic of the ballpark, Chicago summers. So if you go to a game, check it out. Main Concourse 161. For as much as we kind of, I'm not going to say took shots at, but at least labeled guaranteed rates, kind of unlucky situation of having been built in the manner it was, in the year it was. (laughs) Those are two of the quirkiest attributes that we've covered thus far in ballpark banter. A rain room, three rain rooms, and a shower in center field. Well, if we wind up at a game there in the middle of August, I'll definitely check them out at least. We'll report back later. Rounding first and heading to second, on second base at guaranteed rate are the two blue seats in the outfield. So the White Sox primary color is black. And guaranteed rate, therefore, features a lot of black, as well as mixed with the dark green seats and the dark gray paneling, the stadium feels, well, dark. But amidst the sea of dark colors, there are two bright blue seats in the outfield, both of which stand out not just visually, but as monuments to two of the most important moments of the White Sox most important season, 2005. This year, the team won the World Series, 
which was immensely important for the franchise, not just because it was a title, but it was the team's first title since 1917. And I can't believe this, only the sixth time that they had made the playoffs since. Since 1917, that's one playoff appearance nearly every 14 years for 83 years. Oh my spoiler, gosh. Spoiler, they haven't really gotten that much better with that rate. And since the Cubs hadn't obviously won since either, this was the first World Series won in the city of Chicago since World War I. The White Sox run is immortalized by two home runs that were hit in that World Series, both of which also happened in Game 2. The first is Paul Konerko's Grand Slam, which he hit in the bottom of the seventh to give the White Sox the lead, and the second is Scott Podsednik's walk-off home run of that game in the bottom of the ninth, which gave them the win and propelled them to their four-game sweep of the Astros. I always find this a little funny. Both of these home runs were Game 2, it wasn't like one, you know, won the World Series or was a huge thing in like a game seven. Game two, they won it, you know, two games later. Big, huge congratulation. But, you know, strong victory there. I guess what it probably was, was the White Sox opened at home and then won on the road. So these were the most impactful home runs that were hit at their home ballpark. Right, right. I'll always remember like an Adam Frazier double on in Toronto in a wild card series. So, yeah. you know, a. a a seventh inning, a high leverage um, grand slam from your best player, Paul Canerco. Like, yeah, that's a great home run. Yeah. And when you've only made the playoffs once every 14 years, you're allowed to immortalize such moments. Absolutely. And as you can probably imagine, where those home runs landed are marked by the blue seats, which are actually the same seats from that 2005 game with the color being the original blue. So if you get to guaranteed rate, Try to get there actually a decent amount early so that you can enter the ballpark and get a view of the outfield to spot the two blue specks amidst the sea of dark green, pinpointing two of the most famous home runs in White Sox history. Rounding second and heading to third, Kellen, we're not going to step outside of the grounds of the actual ballpark. What's on third at guaranteed rate? We're going to talk about the Champions Plaza. So as you talked about, 2005 was far and away the most important year in White Sox franchise history. And the monuments to that year are not restricted just to the blue seats in the outfield. In fact, the biggest monument at guaranteed rate field is also a monument to that 2005 team. Standing just outside the home plate entrance is the Champions Plaza. It's a gigantic brick baseball diamond shaped plaza that encircles a large black and gray statue. When the plaza first opened, fans could pay to become a member of the Legacy Brick program in which they could purchase a brick and inscribe a message to the team on it, which would be placed in the plaza. This reminds me a bit of, we already covered this at Angel Stadium, where they have that brick diamond outside of the home plate entrance where fans could purchase a brick and they inscribed bricks at certain positions to honor Angel players that had started there on opening days. This this is similar to what the White Sox have done? Not exactly. So it doesn't uh, commemorate White Sox players, but kind of the whole story of the White Sox franchise. Hmm. So the base paths of the brick diamond function as a timeline of the White Sox as a ball club with historical moments noted on the various bricks. But it all eventually leads to the gigantic statue in the middle, which is this 50,000 pound monument to the 2005 championship team. 
it's this kind of odd like mixture of rounded black chrome and these life-size images and bronze statues of players from the 05 team embossed onto it. So you've got like Paul Canerco, Joe Creedy, El Duque, Orlando Hernandez, uh, Jeff Blum, and Juan Uribe. So to someone visiting the great who's, say, a fan of a team with multiple championships, the plaza and the monument might seem like a bit over the top, but to those who are fans of a team that's yet to win it all, Mm. Well, I imagine that we would erect something similar. You and I are Mariners fans. We are yet to even play in a World Series at the time of the recording of this podcast. Whatever team eventually breaks that drought, let alone wins the World Series, erect whatever the hell you want at T-Mobile Park, man. Rename the ballpark after that team. Plenty will be erected. Good job by the White Sox for recognizing this most important season. And I mean, two of the two of the features of Around the Bases here on this episode have talked about the 2005 White Sox. Rounding third and coming home, perhaps the most recognizable physical feature of Guaranteed Rate Field is its unique scoreboard, which looks pretty typical apart from the eight pixelated pinwheels that sit atop it. Colored in red, green, blue, these pinwheels are odes to the original scoreboard at Old Comiskey, which had been erected by the team's then-owner, a man named Bill Veek, who commissioned the scoreboard and lauded it as MLB's first exploding scoreboard, which meant it shot fireworks anytime the team hit a home run. So anytime you go to another stadium and a team hits a home run, or maybe wins a game and fireworks explode, it started at the home of the White Sox. That wraps it up for this episode of Ballpark Banter. If you're enjoying our show and want to support our work, you can buy us a hot dog at the next game we attend by heading to ballparkbanterpodcast.com. While you're there, be sure to check out the book Touch Em All by Travis Parker Smith to learn more about our story and the reason behind the order in which we explore these ballparks. Special thanks as always to Kendall Young, Jack Wilson, and Ruben Palmer for their imperative role in the inspiration of this show, and to all the fans out there who dream of catching a game in every Major League ballpark.